Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Carl Weinberg with us now, High Frequency Economics Chief Economist and Managing Director. Carl, as the week progresses, we'll be knee-deep in CPI retail sales. I think this morning's time has come to have a little bit more of a deeper think about what's happening. You've compared crisis to recession, from crisis to recession, and drawn a distinction between the two. Carl, just walk me through that right now. Sure. Good morning, John. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Lisa. Thanks for having me on. A crisis is a downturn or an adverse situation where you don't have a policy response. And that's where we were a year ago. All right. We had a, a, a pandemic. We had no solution for it other than to shut everything down. That wasn't a good solution. So with no good policy response, you have a crisis. That's my definition. And we, what we're in right now, what the crisis did was it created a recession. And in a recession, we know what we have to do. All right, the problem with this recession, which is different in so many ways from all the recessions before it, is that most of our policy tools are already exhausted. So going into a period where we normally would expect to see policy re supporting uh, re-employment, re-engagement of people in the workforce, growth of the economy, and so forth, policy is pretty much hamstrung and is already doing all that it can do. Carl, you are legendary across the time of Lehman Brothers into world crisis two and three, four decades ago of watching gloom turn into not optimism, but a good workout. Are we just impatient right now? Are we just impatient, worried about fixing things in three months that may take three years to fix? Yeah, three years would be a conservative estimate of history as any guide. You know, some of the people in the market, at least these days, were also in the market in 2008, 2009. And people forget that even though GDP got back to where it was uh, prior to the uh, global financial crisis in just two years, the unemployment rate didn't regain 2008 levels until a decade later. And that kind of delay in employment is actually normal. It's why we have recessions, right? Recessions are a purge of excesses. So firms hire too many workers, right? It's easier, they're fat. Uh, we, we purge, we find we can do just as much with fewer workers uh, in a recession, and then it's very, very slow to bring those workers back on board. Firms are reluctant to bring them back. So uh, I think that we are overly optimistic in expecting that everything's going to get back to the way where it was by the end of this year, and uh, especially in the labor market. And if the labor market is now our criteria for changing monetary policy, then recovery or changes or renormalization of monetary policy is going to be further out than most people expect. Carl, are you saying when you say policy is hamstrung that the Federal Reserve is out of tools to fight another recession? Well, I think that they've extended about as much as they can go in terms of a QE. I mean, technically, they could go further than that. But practically, will they do that? Will they take the heat if there were another downturn? If there was another shock right now, what would the Fed do? What could the Fed plausibly do without unsettling financial markets? And on the fiscal side, it's clear that there's not a lot of appetite anywhere in the world for more deficit spending. Yet that is what would be required. Remember, with fiscal policy, 
It doesn't increase growth unless you get more of it each year. So running bigger deficits than we saw last year, next year, I think is a non-starter, even in the most dire circumstances. Hey, Cal, it's got to catch up, as always, to get your input on this show. Ahead of a big week for this market going into the Fed next week, Cal Weinberg there, High Frequency Economics Chief Economist and Managing Director. Okay, we're going to stop the show. This is what we do. We talk to smart, smart people, Imperial College in London, Johns Hopkins. We've done a lot of uh, work with. Thank you, Mr. Bloomberg, for that. Uh, I think at University of Washington Microbiology, Joshua Sharfstein from Johns Hopkins with us today. And we're just going to flat out stop, Joshua, after umpteen months and brilliant people like you trying to extricate ourselves from this pandemic to celebrate that one million kids will go back to school in New York City today. I mean, it's just a huge deal in New York City, back to school. Let's cut to the chase. Is it going to be safe? How do you go back to school and be safe if you're not vaccinated under 12 years old? Well, I think it's going to be uh, pretty safe because New York is taking as many precautions as it possibly can take. It's really important for kids to be back in school. So you're right. It is a really uh, great thing that they're doing it, but it's going to require you know, build a vigilance and it's going to require these different uh, mitigation steps, masking, um, testing, other kinds of things until we really get a handle on what the Delta virus does in schools, particularly for younger kids. Link your knowledge of the unvaccinated, including the runner up at the U.S. Open, I believe, uh, is unvaccinated on the male side, uh, Djokovic, link the unvaccinated across this nation with kids and teachers and staff going back to school? Well, one thing that's been clear is that um, states with more people who are unvaccinated are also seeing many more sick kids, particularly young sick kids. And that's probably because adults who are unvaccinated who get sick can really infect kids effectively. And adults who are vaccinated, are it's much harder for them to infect kids. And so I think that um, one of the ways we can protect kids is to have adults generally vaccinated. A second way is to have adults in schools vaccinated. And so I'm very supportive of policies that, that, that require um, adults in schools to be vaccinated. It's absolutely for the safety of the kids. Dr. Sharfstein, almost every parent out there is going to get a dreaded email one morning in the next couple of weeks saying somebody in your kid's school was diagnosed with COVID. Don't worry or worry. You have to quarantine or not quarantine. What is the correct protocol if someone is in contact or within six feet for, say, uh, 10 straight minutes, even if they are masked in a school? So, um, what I would say is it's really important for there to be good communication about this and to explain to parents as much as possible exactly how this will be handled and then follow through on that rather than surprise everyone the first time there's a positive test. It is going to be expected that that, that may happen. Here's how we're going to deal with it. Um, and I think that in general, um, it is certainly for, um, for kids who are vaccinated, older kids who are vaccinated, they do not necessarily according to the CDC, I think, need to uh, be quarantined. Some schools may want to do that out of an abundance of caution. Others may want to try to use tests, for example, to keep kids in school. There are going to be a few different practices. I think the most important thing is that they're explained clearly to parents and that the school is monitoring whether their particular approach works and is flexible to changing 
um, if necessary, based on what they see early in the school year. Dr. Sharfstein, the start of the New York City school year really highlights how people are trying to get back to some semblance of normal. People are saying get back to the office. City workers have to be back in person. And yet it is pockmarked by all these notices and by the ongoing spread of the virus. When do we get to some sort of equilibrium? Are we heading into a really perilous fall where people are trying to act like everything is normal when it is anything but? I think that we're headed right now into a bit of a new normal. You know, we can go to work, but we may need to wear masks in the workplace or make sure everybody's vaccinated um, and that people need to be uh, a little bit more vigilant. I think we're going to be in that period for a while, at least until cases really go down um, and we, you know, get a little bit more of a distance between us and, and the virus. It obviously depends on where you are in the country and the situation. But for example, at our school, you know, we're, we have kids back in class. Um, we have a little bit more distance than usual, uh, fewer people in a classroom, but they can sit, you know, three feet away uh, with a mask on and um, and everybody is vaccinated. So, you know, we have a new normal, but we are excited to be in the classroom and teaching. And I've been doing some of that. I think it's fair to say, Lisa, you and many others anticipating a bit of a problem this fall into winter. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, my kids actually went to back, back to school a little bit early because they go to a charter school. And I will just tell you that they actually uh, have already had to stay home for a week as a result, John, of this idea that they have been quarantined and basically somebody was exposed. Just got started, Lisa. I I'm telling already. you, it was the I second week. So I just yeah. wonder what kind of provisions do people make to uh, potentially have childcare when they have to go back to the office? Your experience, Lisa, the experience of so many right now, Tom Keane, across this country. Yeah, it is. And, 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 you know, I think what's so important here, uh, John, is the idea of how it links into Joe Biden's stridency. The president has made clear this is strident, but has he talked enough about the schools within that stridency? Joshua, we've got to leave it there. Got to catch up. Joshua Shafstein there. Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health Vice Dean. Should we get to Francisco yeah. about know, this? It's Let's aluminium. The international standard out of London, Francisco Blanche, Bank of America head of global commodities and derivatives research. Good to catch up, Francisco. Let's just start with what's going on with aluminum, aluminium, 3K. What's happening? Is this all supply scarcity? Uh, Indeed, in Jonathan, there, there's, uh, there's supply scarcity uh, on, on a couple different fronts. We've had, of course, uh, uh, a coup d'etat in Guinea, which has uh, created some anxiety around bauxite supplies. Uh, bauxite is the ingredient uh, into alumina, which uh, in turn <laughs> is the key uh, ingredient into aluminum or alu aluminium. Um, so nice. um, so yeah, we, we've had shortages there uh, because of the coup. But then more importantly, China has been curbing uh, aluminum supplies now for most of the, uh, most of the year because um, they're trying to rein in uh, power generation, become cleaner. And remember, it's been a low rainfall year in China. It's one of the reasons they've been uh, trying to crack down on Bitcoin, too. So thermal generation is very strong, but it's mostly, again, uh, filling the gap for that lack of hydropower. So so uh, if you look at aluminum production year to date in China, it's kind of flat as a pancake. Demand's kept growing. Uh, we have all this liquidity in the system, and, and that's what's pushing prices higher. Mm -hmm. you know, Francisco, I saw the London Metals Index, the Bloomberg indexes as well, show metals as a group doing better. We know the Bloomberg Commodity Index uh, has done better as well. Does it signal a commodities breakout? Can you call a bull market in commodities? Um, well, I mean, we, you know, uh, Tom, we, we've had a bit of a bull market already for a while uh, since, since we hit the lows back in April last year. 
So um, we remain constructive here. We we think prices of commodities, most commodities, will keep going higher. Uh, but again, it depends on where you look at. Uh, remember, uh, iron ore has been coming down very hard since Valley started exporting uh, more volumes. Uh, but then oil, on the other hand, it's kind of sitting. Uh, it's a bit of a boiling frog waiting for the winter. And natural gas, of course, is ripping uh, around the, the world and, and also dragging up U.S. nat gas with it. So depends where you look at. But in broad terms, uh, commodities are very strong because we have a lot of liquidity in the system. We are growing. We have supply constraints. We have low inventories. It's kind of a perfect cocktail for commodities to keep ripping higher. And when you talk about oil in the cold winter, there was a note that I believe your team put out that you do see the potential for $100 barrel oil in the United States and elsewhere based on what supplies are doing. Just want to bring you these headlines. OPEC sees stronger demand for its crude this year and next. At the same time, non-OPEC output is supposed to be down. This really directly speaks to the shale patch. What's the tipping point at which point we start to see uh, supplies go up to meet the demand and regulate? Well, so so I think I think right now we have a very short window into the winter. We're all still uh, wearing flip-flops and shorts in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere, but that's going to change very quickly. Within a month or two, it's going to get cold. It could get very cold. I think natural gas is going to be very strong. And uh, if if it breaks out, and remember, we're already trading over $20 per MMBTU, which is $120 a barrel of oil equivalent in oil, um, and, and we go another 10 bucks higher on M per MMBTU, which would put us at $180 per, per, per barrel of oil equivalent, I think that would drag up the entire oil sector because people will look for cheaper sources of, of, um, of, of BTUs, of calorific value for, for heating and for power generation. We see a very strong... Bunker fuel marketing Singapore already because of that reason. So I'm a little concerned that um, the winter gets cold. We're going to see uh, uh, the entire yeah. energy complex ripping higher. Francisco, what does the move in these commodities say about the resurgence of the Pacific Rim? Um, well, I mean, I think the Pacific Rim is, is definitely coming back. Now, the one thing I would note is that China is a little softer. And remember, one thing we've we've been uh, tracking with with a lot of interest is what's going on in the property sector in China, with Evergrande's bonds uh, coming down very hard. Uh, Chinese new loan issuance also uh, slowing down materially over the last few months, um, and that's one thing that uh, you know we we keep a close eye on. Uh, but but generally, the the Asia Pacific Rim, the PAC Rim, uh, as you put it, uh, it, it's definitely coming back with force. And remember, over the next six months, we're going to have a huge surge in vaccinations which will restart air travel. So we think $100 oil is more likely next summer when we all start flying internationally much more um, in, in, in a much much greater way. Otherwise, it may happen sooner if the winter uh, turns very cold. But the pack rim is definitely coming back. But it's a triple-digit crude price, the base case for you, Francesco. Is that your base case now? We, we, have, a, our, 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 we have a call uh, for $100 oil for next summer. What we are saying is if the winter's cold, we would roll. We could roll that up six months, and it may happen this winter. Wow! But again, uh, you know, we're in a tight market uh, for for energy, and and oil is uh, again is still benefiting from OPEC excess capacity, but we don't have uh, the 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 amount of shale available uh, over a short window of time to to meet that call if if the weather gets cold. Francisco. Um, it, just an yeah. amazing call. And we want you to come back again soon so we can talk about that. The prospect of that call comes in six months. Francisco Blige there of Bank of America.
Let's get straight to the quote of this morning. We've been jokingly calling this rally the Ed Sheeran or Dave Matthews rally. Essentially, it is a rally that nobody likes, and yet it continues to go up. The author of that quote, I'm pleased to say, is with us now. Amy Wu Silverman, RBC Capital Markets Equity Derivative Strategist. Amy, let's start right there. Any reason for that to change anytime soon? <laughs> so, so look, guys, so far, no. You know, I was watching the drawdown, uh, you know, the past week with great interest because the option sentiment has been so glum through year end. And, it, you know, once usually you get kind of a breather, it kind of comes off. And, and the reality is it hasn't. So, you know, we remain glum. We remain with demand for downside protection. And even despite the move down, you know, that has kind of stayed solid, which just tells you that sentiment uh, is still kind of saying this is this is unloved and they're mm -hmm. waiting for even further of a move. Amy, the week be the weekends, the week begins and we have to focus on acuity here away from the lyrics of Ed Sheeran and Dave Matthews. You've created a firestorm out in the street with your vicious, mean-spirited note. Give us the acuity right now of why you can own equities. Yeah, look, I think part of it is because the market is well hedged. We are very well positioned to the downside. I'll give you guys one stat that Please. I think really puts this into context. You know, if you just sold one of these 10% out of the money put options on the S&P in October, right now you can buy the equivalent 60 times the upside. Now, just to provide some history on that metric, back in July, that was at 15 times. So what that's telling you is the market is ready for the market going down. Um, and oftentimes when that happens, the, the reverse is not true, right? The market is not ready for the market going up. And so, you know, that brings you to a potential path if something good does happen of people climbing having to scramble to get that leverage on the upside. All I can say, Amy, is I'm sure you got a lot of pushback on the Dave Matthews point, especially based on some of the people who read your notes. A lot of people like Dave Matthews, and we could discuss that in detail. One I thing learned that, you, that the hard way. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> got a lot of hate mail. Um, there is a question about how people are looking at inflation, how people are looking at margin pressures. And one thing that you said in your note that I thought was fascinating is the options market is not pricing in concern at all over a six month period or 12 month period for inflation in the consumer staples. However, not really the case in industrials. Can you explain? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's important because we kind of talk about inflation in this broad umbrella. And the reality is, obviously, different sectors are going to be impacted differently. You know, when you look at consumer staples on a two-month period, when you look at the names in it, like a Kroger, for example, where, you know, it was down 9% last week, you're seeing it short term. And yet that disappears over a six-month period and a 12-month period when you look at those relative implied volatilities completely the opposite true is industrials. Now, you know, as I mentioned in my note, some of this is tax related, but what this tells me is, look, if you believe that the cost pressures do remain in consumer staples over the longer term, that options market pricing has not put that there yet. So that is an opportunity to own those puts within that sector specifically. I think that's how you have to play inflation concerns right now. How much is this the way that people are looking at the market rather than go long a particular sector? They're looking at how margin pressures are being priced in in specific sectors and trying to get ahead of things uh, that way. Yeah, I think, look, it's going to go sector by sector, Lisa. It's also going to go stock by stock. So, you know, we're really focused on where we see that change in option sentiment. And, and you know, stock by stock, Kroger, for example, you know, that the normalized skew in that name is at a two-year high. So essentially the demand for downside protection, again, this is even after it's gone down 9%. That's what I think is key for people to remember. It's, you know, after you've had that move down, 
oftentimes hedges are removed. This is not what is happening in names where you continue to see that inflation pressure. So people think it will continue to go down. Okay, so Amy, after this, I'm in love with the shape of this market. You know, that's great. It's an actually go out there, folks, and read Ed Sheeran lyrics. It's um, Tom, that was beautiful. <laughs> John, that thank little piece you. Of me just died. You know, good jokes don't need to be hey. explained, TK. Well, I didn't say it was a good <laughs> joke, harsh. but Amy, we're in love <laughs> with the shape of this market. But the reason why the skew is the way it is, you know, Ed Sheeran taught me the Greek letters. The reason that the skew is the way it is is fear. How do you know when to step into fear and go long? Yeah, you know, look, you don't. I, I, I wish I did. It's always about timing, right? You don't. Yeah. Uh, you know, the way I kind of think about it is what could possibly drive, you know, this market to the upside. It, what Lisa said earlier about just the childcare point, I feel deeply personally because I have two school-age children. But look, if you get a vaccine earlier than expected for the under 12 crowd, right, the crowd that actually needs childcare infrastructure, that's something that could potentially bring this market up. The same with, you know, a better than expected NFP data point. Again, you know, the timing is always difficult. The point is just that the positioning is really not to the upside at all. With the I mean, that's so market. important. Let's finish there. Do you think that authorization for children could have a similar effect on this market in the same way that we saw things develop in early November last year? Yeah, you know, look, I, I'm not a medical expert, but I, I think that, that this is one of those things where you just kind of know personally if you're if you're living through it, right? Like if, if this is something that you know that you can safely send your children to school and so you're not, you know, calling a backup sitter at the 11th hour because you still have to go to the office and, you know, you can't leave a seven-year-old at home, then then sure, of course it helps that that makes it so the stability of the, the return to work is uh, is something that can happen. Amy, thank you. Thanks for catching up with us this morning. Amy Woo Silverman there of RBC Capital Markets. Paul and Tom Keener, our most important conversation of the day on the here and now. Mr. Cass is with us this morning, Douglas Cass, Seabreeze Investment, and his people briefed us this morning that we are not talking about the New York Yankees, the Boston <laughs> Red Sox, or the Toronto Blue Jays wow. out Boy, can of they hit. nowhere. Yeah. The Torontos. <laughs> the Torontos. Doug Cass, good morning. Market breadth represents the total number of stocks that are increasing as opposed to the number of stocks that are undergoing a decline. You are focused. I am focused. I'm fearful about the equity market. And I'm basically of the view that investors are underpricing risk. Um, investors today are really wildly bullish, um, despite a, a long laundry list of uncertainties and despite um, a wide range of possible economic outcomes. There's virtually no one looking for anything other than a garden variety correction at most. And as a measure of that optimism, Bank of America conducted a survey of their private wealth clients representing over $3 trillion in assets, and their investors are at 65.3% in stocks. That's mm-hmm. an all-time high. And today's, and you've just been discussing this for the past week, today's strategists offer very precise and sometimes preposterous price targets. Thank you. That reflect their optimism that economic growth will not be threatened by inflation, by higher costs, by continued supply dislocations, right. by higher taxes, et cetera, the government's debt load, and even higher deficits. Right. Um, yeah, a few strategists have recently voiced some short-term concern, Paul and Tom, but look at the shallowness of their downside targets. Yeah. There is a unanimity that dips at a buy, forgetting about drawdowns over yeah. history. 
And as I said yeah. to you last time, Grandma Koufax taught me a more balanced way to look at the markets. <laughs> she the taught me to always it. look over my shoulder because the Cossacks may be attacking us. So I, you <laughs> could describe me now as the anti-Ethel Merman, who I prefer over right. Ed Sheeran and Dave Matthews. There we go. <laughs> Everything doesn't always come up roses. Yeah. And I would describe the market a little yeah. differently. I prefer the lyrics of Jerry Garcia to Dave Matthews from the Grateful Dead song, Ripple. There is a road, but it's no simple highway between yeah. the dawn and the dark. So I see things differently than okay. the bulls. And I, I would a- end by saying, among other things, when, when Powell tells us that inflation is transitory, I'm reminded of that great scene in Princess Bride when Inigo Montoyo tells Vicini, I do not think the word means what you think it means. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, shout out to Lizanne Saunders, who, like Doug Cash, channeled the past and excellence and mentioned the Stones yes. in Philadelphia <laughs> in 1981. Doug, Paul's got a bunch of adult questions. Just one quick question for you. Is our pontification about equities now shattered or changed because of all this media and social media? Boy, that's a question. That's a great question. I would look, I would, I have a different take on that. I think it's shattered um, because we rarely discuss the dangers associated with the evolution of market structure. Um, You know, in the old days, uh, when we started talking to each other, the dominant investor used to be active investors like mutual funds and hedge funds. And today our markets are dominated by these passive investors, ETFs and quant strategies. Um, I'm reminded of a quote that Warren Buffett uh, said in 2006 when he was talking about derivatives being financial weapons of mass destruction that led to the great uh, financial crisis. He said, beware of geeks bearing formulas. <laughs> um, so today the geeks account for over 70% of the trading volume. Uh, and so Warren's comments could apply to the risk parity boys and the quants today. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's a, I think there's a non-trivial danger in this transition as passive investors know everything about price, but nothing about value. They act and are in herds. They feast on price momentum. That's their prey. They don't consider reward versus risk. They're not CFAs. They know nothing about discounted dividend models. Uh, they never looked at a balance sheet or a P&L statement and have no emotions because they're algos and machines to take their yeah. strategies. So <laughs> any inflection point momentum can lead to these abrupt yeah. Yeah. Uh, changes and even avalanche of selling. Look what happened. On Friday, uh, S&Ps were up 28 handles at 9.30 in the morning. They closed 60 handles lower to end the day, minus 34. There was no new news. It just happened. It's sort of like when the Yankees won 13 in a row and then went two for eight in the next 10, uh, 10 games. Um, you know, I'm looking at the Yankees' schedule here, and, I mean, they end brutal. Three games with Toronto – you promised me three, not to discuss Three games that. with Tampa Bay. The Yankees have the toughest season close of any team. I mean, Tampa Bay, since, since when do we fear Tampa Bay? But if you're They're the Yankees, you have to. You have to. They're, All right, Doug. Can I, can I just mention one thing about stocks? Um, Please. Sure. About, uh, Why not? Why? You, you know, I usually come on and I have these cautious remarks. Um, um, you know, and I am concerned about the fragility of the economy, our market structure, and other reasons uh, like stagflation. But... I see some really extraordinary long opportunities today in deeper value and hated market sectors. The market has been so bifurcated. Um, and can I just mention very briefly one group that I'm buying aggressively? Sure. Please, and then we got to really let Sweeney in here. <laughs> no, you know, the last time you heard me about buying was a year ago in bank stocks. 
I think that we're at a generational low for cannabis stocks, and it's not dissimilar to when the S&P was at 666 on that fateful day in March of 2009 when I was on the Larry Kudlow show and talking about a generational low in stocks. I think that cannabis represents the single best reward versus risk on the long side of any sector that I've encountered in the last decade. Um, most of the major industry players are improving their franchises, their footprints, mm-hmm. while the government deals with the Safe Banking Act and legalization, both of those of which I see happening during the next couple of months. Um, but they've been increasingly profitable while uh, legislators debate. Okay. Today, most institutional investors can't even buy the stocks because they're on the pitch sheets yeah. or trade yeah. in Canada. But these are artificial yeah. constraints, and yeah. I'm buying MSOS, which right. is the largest ETF. The, the pink sheets is what the reason, folks, Doug Cass is living large in Florida. Paul, <laughs> we're going long weed stocks. Doug, you and Tom are grizzled veterans. I'm putting it politely there. Um, you don't fight the Fed is something we all learned a long time ago. If the Fed's going to be more or less our friend, doesn't that support stocks? You know, um, <laughs> I would say that record high stock prices, the generational low in interest rates, yep. and the extreme valuations that we see today are fertile ground for bogus and new narratives and paradigms. It's kind of the polar opposite of the dire pessimism again, in March 20, 2009. Yep. Do you remember a famous uh, uh, 1998 column published in Wire by Peter Schwartz and Peter Layden during the dot-com boom when they talked about a long economic boom? Probably that not. All right. Well, I was it's a famous too busy push, pushing those stocks out the door. It, 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 it pushed the dot-com stocks uh, to new highs. And um, three years after that column, there was an 80% collapse in the NASDAQ. Seven years later, there was the great financial crisis. Um, the mantra that sky-high valuations are now suddenly acceptable as interest rates fall to almost zero has provided today's rational and popular narrative. But low rates provide the roots to uh, historically high value- valuations. And I would counter the Tina argument with the statement that there's a fundamental problem with the low rates argument that we may be comparing one overvalued asset class to another. You know, know, a year and a half ago when I liked stocks, the dividend yield on the S&P exceeded that of the 10-year. Today, the dividend yield on the S&P is down to 1.28. It's the lowest in 20 years and not far from the record low of 110 in 2000. Doug, I got 15 seconds. Michael from the Poconos asked, should he buy Amazon? Uh, buy Amazon and put it away. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Doug Cass, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Next time, Doug me. Cass on Jays, Rays, and Yankees. <laughs> this is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.